You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast is part of the CBLDF's ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, I speak to Vivek Tawari, the writer of The Fifth Beetle, currently out from Dark Horse Comics. The Fifth Beetle is the story of Beetle's manager Brian Epstein, and it's illustrated by Andrew Robinson. It's currently nominated for a host of awards, which we'll talk about towards the end of this interview. And without further delay, let's jump right into this interview. Uh, here is Vivek Tawari talking about The Fifth Beetle. Well, I guess I should say that the heart of The Fifth Beetle goes all the way back to childhood because I've been reading comics since I was a little kid. I love comics, and I've been listening to The Beatles since I was a little kid. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's putting two of my earliest passions together. Um, but to get into the longer, more specific answer about The Fifth Beetle, because it is the Brian Epstein story, it's not The Beatles story. You know, I discovered the Brian Epstein story when I was in business school, which is 21 years ago. Uh, and I was dreaming about working in entertainment being a little academic, a little bit nerdy, to be honest. I thought that if I'm going to be working in this field, I should study the lives of the great entertainment visionaries. And uh, believing that the Beatles and their management team in Brian kind of wrote that rule book, I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein. And again, this is 21 years ago. So in perspective, there's no Wikipedia, there's no YouTube, there's no Google, there's none of these online resources that we take for granted today. And The Fifth Beetle is actually the only book in print about Brian Epstein. So going back 21 years, you know, it was very difficult to learn anything about Brian. Um, So I had no choice but to do interviews. You know, I basically read every respected Beatles book I could get my hands on. And and I would read like a 300-page book about the Beatles and I'd get 10 good pages about Brian. But eventually by doing that, you know, doing that a number of times, I began to get a portrait of who were the people who knew him best his colleagues, his other clients, his allies, his friends, his enemies, etc. And really, I just cold called these people. And I said, hey, I'm a student. The little bit I know about Brian Epstein, I find inspirational, and I'm trying to learn more. And after you know some, some diligence in making sure that I was who I said I was, uh, all these people were very willing to talk to me. And it started out just, just basic information about what he did for the Beatles, but as they became more and more comfortable with me, and I could say that over the years uh, they've all become friends, you know, they began to open up to me about his personal life and the human struggles that he faced, which is really at the heart of the Fifth Beatle. That's what I was going to ask when you talk about interviewing people, because the book itself, for anyone who hasn't read it yet, it, it gets very intimate. It goes yeah. deep into uh, the, the inner life of, uh, of Brian Epstein. And I'm wondering, at what point did people really start opening up and saying, this is who he really was, these are what he really yeah, I mean, wanted? It's funny because it was, I don't know that there was a eureka moment or, mm-hmm. or, a, or a, you know, a eureka evening where they sat down and said, we're comfortable with you, Vivek, and we're going to tell you the true story. You know, it was more that like bits and pieces like sort of slowly came out uh, over the years that they would tell a story about something that they did that tied into his sexuality and I'd be like, okay, like, so you're willing to talk a little bit more about him being gay? Like, tell me more about that, you know? And, and then slowly, uh, these folks open, opened up to me. And really, to be totally honest, it's been within the past five to seven years, like the thick of working on the graphic novel. And I think that's partially because a number of these folks, I'll, I'll mention two in particular, who are good examples, Nat Weiss and Sid Bernstein. Nat Weiss is a major character in the book. For those of you who've read it, you'll know that he was the Beatles' U.S. attorney, and he was Brian Epstein's best friend and closest confidant. 
um, he was gay, and so he um, he introduced Brian to the homosexual nightlife in New York City, and so uh, he was also very informative to me about that aspect of Brian's life. Sid Bernstein is the legendary concert promoter who brought the Beatles over to the United States for the first time, and uh, and Sid and Brian sh shared a Jewish cultural heritage. Uh, being Jewish uh, in the music industry in the 1960s was an obstacle, uh, certainly in the United Kingdom, where where it was run by folks like Sir Lou Grade, you know, very white Christian knights of the British Empire. Sure. Uh, so, um, so you know, Sid, Sid was able to kind of illuminate to me some of the struggles Brian faced around that issue of his life. Um, I mentioned Sid and Nat in particular because they were both New Yorkers. So they were both folks that I was able to be become very close to because I'm a New Yorker as well. We spent a number of very social evenings together. But they also both passed away before The Fifth Beatle was published, unfortunately. So, so I'm, I guess it's a long-winded way of what I'm getting at here is that I think folks like Sid and Nat, I think they opened up to me slowly and more, more deeply over the past seven years because A, they realize that the world is a more open place now. Sure. And talking about the issues of like Jewish struggles and gay struggles aren't as taboo as it might have been 10 or 15 years ago, you know. And B, I think they realized that they were getting older. And, right. and they they did. They were going to pass away at some point. And if they don't tell their stories to somebody who cares, those stories are going to get lost. Did you they know? get to see the, the work in progress? They did. The they okay. did. I'm very happy to say that they both got to see an essentially completed galley. So uh, so they also That's both great. got to see what, what the book was all about. But they unfortunately didn't get to see the uh, the amazing reaction uh, that the world has had to it. But um, hopefully they're they're observing from up above. I mean, I could say both of those guys, their spirit is in that book. There's no question. So this, this takes us around to, um, I think, part of the reason that you've been involved with the CBLDF through the course of the, the promotion of the book is a lot of Brian Epstein's life involved him hiding a lot of who he was, a lot That's of right. how he felt. And, and that ties into kind of this, this moral panic in pop culture, which we talk about constantly as part of our program, where people are just terrified of, of the homosexuality, of... I don't want to say terrified of Judaism, but it was... It was still something that was, you know, anti-Semitism was, was pervasive is the word that I would use. You sure. Know? I think in Europe That's especially... How people, people... Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. You know, no question. How, how much was he hiding his homosexuality? I mean, now it seems to be kind of out in the open that Brian Epstein was... Um, was gay, but at the time, was this a completely closeted? Completely individual? closeted. Okay. Yes. I mean, he, he, if only because he really had no choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the United Kingdom, the uh, the colloquially known Oscar Wilde laws were in place, sure, which basically means it was a felony. It was literally a felony. The the colloquially known Oscar Wilde laws were still in place in the United Kingdom. Ironically, they were repealed the year that Brian died. But so the point is, during his lifetime, it was a felony to be homosexual. Mm -hmm. If you were seen walking down the street with a member of the same sex, you could be thrown in jail. I mean, it was that serious. So Brian was incredibly closeted. Uh, it, he, in fact, um, you know, he chose a career that was very dangerous because as he became, as, as he um, achieved more and more accomplishments for his clients, as he brought the Beatles more and more international success, his clients and, and himself by, by uh, association were drawn more into the public limelight. So every time he achieved a career goal for the Beatles, he risked him his own, uh, you know, secret, if you will, uh, being uh, being greater scrutinized and possibly coming out into the open. In which case, he could have been thrown in jail, sure. and he could have gotten both himself and his clients, uh, you know, in in a dangerous place. And so it was something that he he kept incredibly closeted. I guess in the book, it 
it sometimes seemed that it's it's like a, a side to him that he kept completely secret, and then there's kind of an open secret aspect of it with John Lennon in particular. And some sure. Other people. So I, yes, I and, sure. I, and I should say that. I mean, there's yeah. no question that within his inner circle, you know, he let people know, if only so he could be comfortable around them. Sure. But he definitely shielded his struggles over it. Like, for example, the Beatles knew that he was gay. Right. You know, he it was important for him to be comfortable around them because he viewed them as a family. He always said the Beatles are a family. And I think he would have liked to have thought of himself as the fifth Beatle, as a member of that family. And so, you know, you should be open around your family. They should know uh, you know the intricacies of your of your personal life and and what and what you what it means to love to you. So so he was very open with them about that, but he he very much shielded his struggles around his homosexuality for them because part of his management style was to put his clients at ease and to not have to to make sure that they did not worry about the business. You know, there's a line in the book where he says, you know, you play your instruments and I'll play the business like it's my instrument, only you'll never have to hear it. You know, and that's part of his style. So so while he was open with his homosexuality, uh, he was very closed about his struggles connected to that homosexuality. Sure. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the approach. You talked a lot about um, the research you did in the interviews. Yeah. So you have all of this research. You have, I'm guessing, hours of, of interviews. And now it's time to sit down and put it together and go, you know, panel one. Yep. Um, what is your artistic background? Are you doing any sort of, like, art direction? Are you doing any sort of, like, here's the layout for the page? Or are you doing a more general kind of script? Because I, I should say that your collaborator is Andrew Robinson, who's yeah. his work is spectacular, and he's a really um, amazing storyteller. Indeed. Um, and this book is a real great showcase for his storytelling skills. Talk a little bit about the collaboration. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I knew that I wanted to do this in the graphic novel medium, and in large part that was because I feel that, um, you know, the graphic novels can, can capture very powerfully not just the facts of a, of a story, but its poetic essence. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm very proud of the fact that one of the categories we've been nominated for in the Eisner is the reality-based graphic novel, because I believe that reality-based graphic novels are incredibly powerful, and I'm hoping that more writers who are writing about historical stories will look at the graphic novel medium seriously as, as one of the best ways to tell whatever those stories are. Um, so I felt that I was both telling a story, recounting facts, and trying to get into the poetry. You know, it was important for me to convey the, his human struggles. As I said, that that to me is really the key of the Brian Epstein story. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's about the Beatles of it all, and that's certainly uh, fascinating and will draw a lot of readers to it. But the heart of the story is his human struggles. So uh, being a lifelong comics fan, you know, I was familiar with a lot of artists, and I, I knew, ne- but never having done a book before, I wanted to make sure that I worked with an artist who was incredibly talented, but that also, as, as you pointed out, had great storytelling skills, you know, who could sort of hold my hand a little bit throughout that process. And, uh, and I come from a theater background. You know, I produced extensively on Broadway, and, bro- and theater is a very collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Um, while I have not been art director or director on my theatrical shows, as a creative producer, you get very involved in those elements of shows. So it's funny, the, the script for Fifth Beatle was kind of all over the place. You know, there were, um, to give Andrew his, his, his due credit, and definitely so much credit is due to Andrew, you know, there were wide sections that were like a script. You know, a lot of dialogue, notes on characters' emotions and their facial expressions and, and what they're going through at that period in their life, but leaving it entirely up to Andrew and needing his advice on how do we tell this through sequential art? Right. You know, how do we break it into panels? Um, how many pages does this sequence need, et cetera? 
But then there were other sequences, being a lifelong comics fan and understanding the medium of comics, where I knew exactly what I wanted. And I said, this page, I want it broken down into four panels, and I want the camera angles to be like this, and I want the lighting to look like this. And I, you know, I would often talk in theater terms like that. Um, you know, but uh, I would be very, and here's photo reference, and here's exactly how I want it to look. And Andrew, you know, might in those moments say, great, but how about this other idea? Or I like that, but I, you know, I have another suggestion to make it a little bit better. And there were some times where he said, perfect, I get exactly what you want, and I'll, and I'll do it. You know, so, um, so there really was, was a, a variety of different ways of approaching this book. You know, I, I suspect uh, we were a little bit all over the place. I've heard of some projects where, you know, writers, you know, are very detailed and say exactly what they want, and and the artists have to have to conform to that. And other projects where writers basically sub submit dialogue, and the artists uh, kind of have to go and figure it all out. I I would say we were both. You know, there were moments of both. One of the the great things about comics, and I expect theater is a lot like this, is that the level of collaboration varies wildly from project to project. Indeed. And the, yeah. The the authorship authorhood. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is there there's some overlap that the beauty of collaboration is in that kind of the no center question. part of the Venn diagram yeah you know I'll, I'll talk about my, my favorite what were one of my favorite sequences in the book that illuminates kind of this discussion that we're, we're having right now is the three pages where Brian first sees the Beatles perform at the cavern uh-huh you know there have been countless books about the Beatles and I will argue uh, that none of those books captures the essence of that moment better than do those three pages of Andrew's art, you know, because those three pages will show you what Brian felt, you yes. know, the hope, the possibility, the, the you know, the, the infusion of color that, that that moment held for him. You know, a number of books have tried to, to capture that moment. What was it that Brian saw in the Beatles? It if also, you really want to know, look at those three pages of Fifth Beatle and wait before, before you say anything. Yes. I will also say as, <laughs> as writer, if you also look at those pages, there's almost no, dot, no writing there. The little bit that is there is a quote, a quote from a famous bullfighter. So it's not even my words. But Andrew and I talked about that scene extensively. You know, so it really is one of those those magical moments that that I think is collaborative. And as a writer, I was happy not to have any of my words on it. You know, that's a picture telling a thousand words right there. The other the other beautiful thing about that sequence too is he captures the design element of he, he captures the aesthetic of the early mid sixties. Totally, like a, absolutely. Um, he taps into that like it could have been drawn then. Absolutely. Um, which is, you know, the, the confluence of all of those different things really make yeah. it a, 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 an intense moment in the book. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, that's Andrew's moment. But, like, you know, we talked, as I said, we had hours of conversations about what that felt like, what I wanted to get across in the facial expressions. I said I wanted to have the matador image thrown in there because that was a motif that would run throughout the book. And I also believe that, you know, in that moment, Brian saw himself as a matador. It was the dance with death. As we talked about earlier, the profession that was dangerous, but sure. also an ability to raise himself up and to make a difference in the world and to be a bit of center stage. You know, there was all these things that went into that moment that ultimately I said, I'm not going to write any words, Andrew. You, you, you figure out how to do all that, you know, and it was and the results are, are spectacular. Well, it also it takes us back to what I was talking about before. One of the the impressive things about the book is that it really uh, it's a visual representation of an internal life. Yes, that's right. Um, Nicely put. Thank and you. it and it you really feel like you're the the point of view is very specifically Brian Epstein. It's not about 
the story Brian Epstein, it's really about Epstein looking at his own story from the inside out. Is that yeah, fair? Um, yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's beautiful. Um, and it makes it, and it's really interesting to me that you got into his head so strongly just from the kind of Rashomon aspect of talking to sure, yeah. to his friends um, because you really feel like you've you've watched all this stuff happen um, from his point of view. Yeah, you know, there there was uh, there's a there's a scene in the book where he sits down with Elvis Presley's manager Colonel Tom Parker uh-huh. and they have breakfast together and um, and Parker uh, you know I won't give away too much but he's uh, it's not it's not a surprise to, to anyone who knows me that uh, I'm not a huge fan of Parker's style uh, in a lot of ways he was the anti-Brian he was very gruff you know he said things like uh, you know um, he referred to Elvis as an attraction uh, he said that you can't ch- trust Jews uh, I mean he was anti-semitic he was anti-gay he was I mean he was not a good man um, but uh, you know Brian, when he first sat down with Colonel Parker, was really hoping to find a friend. He didn't know him personally, and he thought, "Here's a guy who's also managing a, you know, a, a superstar artist whose career is is taking off like a freight train, and and we'll have stuff in common. Maybe he'll be a friend to me, you know." And uh, and and again, I never got a chance to meet Brian, but I spoke to his friends, and they said, you know, he was very disappointed by that breakfast because Parker was none of those things, and you know, he viewed Parker as a bit of a vampire. And I remember thinking that, and I was like, okay, Brian thought he was a vampire, right? So let's make Parker out to be a little vampiric. That scene, you know? is, that scene is great because it's such a like rising hope of like, oh, I'm going to meet somebody, yeah. my, a peer, somebody who's in the same position I am. And then the minute the door opens, it's like, oh, this is not good. Yeah. yeah, and, immediate and, crushing disappointment. Totally. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. And we, you know, and he gets uh, increasingly more satanic. For, there's no yeah. other word to describe it over the course of that sequence. And there's a, there's actually a fun uh, fun geeky comic story behind all this. Um, so so when I was writing the script, there is a note. You know, I said Let, let's make him a little vampiric. And there's a note in the script to Andrew. I said like let's draw him like a Templesmith vampire. Sure. You know, and so at at Heroes last year, I got to meet uh, Ben Templesmith, and uh, and I you know I just, I'm a fan, so I just said like it's nice to meet you, and you know I'm a writer of this four. Coming, the book wasn't out yet. I said this forthcoming book, The Fifth Beetle, and he said, "Oh, I've, I've heard of The Fifth Beetle, and I've seen some of Andrew's uh, work on that." And I said, "There's a moment where I I, I, I name checked you in, in some of my script notes, and I pulled it out. I said, you know, that's Andrew Robinson channeling a Temple Smith vampire, and it was just like one of these." unbelievably cool moments where I, I had to take a step I was like had to do that astral plane moment where I stepped out of myself <laughs> and I was like I can't believe I'm, I'm doing this for a living like I'm, I have the best job on the planet you know let's that you know that's that brings up another good question um, Andrew's style varies pretty wildly throughout the book to the point that there is a complete tonal shift and another artist steps in Kyle yeah, Baker does, yeah, does a handful of pages yeah. Um, do you want to talk about some of the influences that you put into the book? I mean, you mentioned Ben Templesmith, who did uh, 30 Days of Night yeah. and, um, and a number of other great books. Um, but in, any other people that you name-checked and said, you know, this sequence, we really want to feel like dot, dot, dot? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think T- Ben uh, Templesmith might have been the only comic artist we, I name-checked. Um, but you know the Kyle Baker sequence you mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, you know that I wanted that sequence. It's it's a it's a cartoon sequence that takes place in the Philippines. And when I say cartoon, it's supposed to sort of tip its hat to the old Beatles cartoons of the 1960s, not the right. Yellow Submarine cartoons, but the ones that aired on television. But yeah, so I wanted that sequence, that Philippine sequence, to sort of tip its hat to the old Beatles cartoons of the 1960s, the television cartoons, um, but also to be to be about Brian, you know, right. to sort of make it its own. And I really wanted it to feel like an insert. 
almost like a little you know it's it's, it's even has its own title brian epstein in chaos in the philippines you know so i wanted it to feel like almost like a little mini comic book inserted into a bigger book and uh, and i feel andrew robinson can do anything mm-hmm. certainly um but i wanted it to be so abrupt that i thought let's get another artist you know, so that it really does feel like an insert. It feels like a completely different thing. And knowing that I wanted it to have a cartoony feel, um, you know, I reached out to Kyle Baker, who I feel is one of the, the great living cartoonists, you know. Sure. Kyle's also a New York guy, and we've known each other for years. And um, so with, with Kyle, you know, my note to him was, like, be, in, be inspired by those Beatles cartoons of the 1960s, but also make it your own. You know, so, um, so I did kind of uh, name check those there. Um, there's another moment where Brian Epstein gives a party uh, at his house in honor of Sergeant Peppers. Mm-hmm. It's towards the end of the book, and he's really beginning his downward spiral uh, into pills that, that eventually take his life. So, um, so he's very hallucinatory at this moment. And he's also introducing the world to Sergeant Peppers, which is in some ways is viewed as sort of a touchstone of the psychedelic moment, mm-hmm. of the psychedelic era, rather. Um, and, uh, and Brian gives this speech that has to sort of encapsulate all that. And I, I, I do it, for those of you who've read the book, you'll know it's sort of a satire on Shakespeare's St. Crispian's Day speech from Henry V. You know, it's a, instead of Band of Brothers, it's Lonely Hearts Club Band of Brothers. And it's done in a one-page spread uh, where Brian, um, you know, sort of has a matador cape, but it's very fanciful and it pulls images from the rest of the book. And for that, that page, I told Andrew, I said, think of it as do that page in the style of Salvador Dali, as if Salvador Dali was doing a Star Wars movie poster. Sure. And that may not make any sense to you if you're listening to this, but if you pull out the book and take a look, you'll know exactly what I mean. Because again, God bless Andrew, that's exactly what he did. Right. He did a painting that looks like Salvador Dali doing an early Star Wars movie poster, except it's the Fifth Beetle and not Star Wars. And Andrew, won, you know, he nailed it. That's what it looks like. So yeah, I guess I was all over the place. I went from Salvador Dali to Ben Templesmith to Beatles cartoons. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, but, but, but at the end of the day, it was really important for me to work with artists who were going to make it their own. Right. You know, at the end of the day, as much as my, I may have name-checked some other ideas or themes or artists, you know, I really wanted it to look like an Andrew Robinson book, you know? Sure. And I wanted Kyle Baker's sequence in the Philippines to be a Kyle Baker cartoon sequence because those of us who are fanboys know what those sequences are and we'll get excited about that. So, right. so I, I really, I did have notes, but I also really wanted these artists. They're amazing artists. I was blessed to work with these two superstar artists, so I also wanted them to feel that they could have... One of the things we talked about last time we spoke, um, we did an interview when the book premiered, which is still um, archived at cbldf.org. Awesome. Um, but one of the things we talked about is because Epstein was hiding so much of his personal life and so much of his internal life, just with regards to being homosexual, um, that it really uh, it, it made him fight a little bit harder for the Beatles' artistic expression. Yeah, no question. Speaking of Sgt. Pepper, I mean, the, he was around when they really went around the bend and started, they went from being kind of the prototypical early 60s pop band to being the prototypical psychedelic band of the era, um, and they were breaking breaking new ground and doing stuff that was just they could have alienated their fan base and critics so wildly. Um, can you talk a little bit about him kind of shepherding that artistic change and, and his yeah, view I mean, on it? You know, he he said from the very early days. You know, he's famous for saying the, the Beatles are going to be bigger than Elvis. 
because uh, that's a cool little catchphrase. Uh, but he also said the Beatles will elevate pop music into an art form, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a little bit more poetic and esoteric. But what he was getting at is that the Beatles were artists, you know, and like all great artists, you know, they have opinions and thoughts, and, and their art sort of transcends. You know, it's fo- it's steeped in music, but it transcends music. You know, it brings up visual comparisons and and has uh, political statements built into it. And and he really believed that the Beatles would be those kind of artists. So as they got deeper into the '60s, and sure enough, the band did have other artistic expressions that uh, that that bled over into fashion, certainly, mm-hmm. and into politics, um, as the '60s are well known for. Um, Brian believed that they should be able to express those things, and he fought very hard uh, to allow um, the Beatles to do that within the within the confines of their record labels. Even though the band had an incredible amount of leverage because they were a super successful band. You know, when they were at the height of their, or at the, what seemed like the height of their career, they were a boy band, right. you know, and uh, and they were getting offers to tour the world and play stadiums and venues that, that pop stars had never performed before. And there was a moment where Brian said, actually, they're going to take some time off, you know, and they're going to go over to, uh, to the Far East and they're going to study in Indian instrumentation, you know, and the record labels thought this was insane. You know, when you have a hit boy band, what you do is you cash in. You know, you tour your ass off. You put out 10 greatest hits records and a Christmas record. And, you know, you do. And Brian would never let the Beatles do those things, you know. And uh, and he convinced the labels to be okay with that. In large part, not to get too much into the negotiations, but, like, much is made of, like, oh, the Beatles didn't have as great a record contract as they should have. Brian should have negotiated. Well, the truth is, like, Brian said, I'm not going to renegotiate that contract. We're going to honor our word. But you're also going to let us do these seemingly crazy things. You right. know, and they said, "Okay, you know, I'll, you know, if you want to go down to the to the to, to India and, and study with Ravi Shankar, sounds crazy to us, but let, I mean, putting it in perspective, that would be like the manager of One Direction saying, rather than you know making a movie and music videos, the One Direction guys are going to take some time off. They're going to go to Cambodia and Bhutan and learn how to play the gamelan. You know, it'd be like, what? Are you insane? Right. Like One Direction's going to study the gamelan." You know, but that's what it was like. The Beatles, Hard Day's Night, you know, those guys, they're going to study the sitar. You know, that, like that's what it sounded like. But he fought for that because he right. believed that this would, would yield greater artistic expression. And the world got Sgt. Pepper's as a result of it. You know, well, it, got that whole, and, yeah. it got that whole second wave of Beatles yeah, yeah. records, which, which arguably culminated in Sgt. Pepper's. But you're right, it got Revolver and, and even the beginnings of Rubber Soul. And, yeah. you know, it, it got that whole second wave of Beatles albums. And that was something Brian fought very hard to, uh, to create a situation where the Beatles could, could, could experiment with that kind of stuff. And really, at the heart of all this, when you really boil it back down, it's free speech. Mm-hmm. It's another form of free speech, you know. It's not flat-out censorship, but being a but saying that like you can't express yourself artistically in this way is a kind of censorship, I think, you know. So I believe that that Brian's struggles are very similar to the kind of things we are we are fighting fighting against here at, at CBLDF. Well, you know, free expression and artistic expression. When with music, it's a little bit different. Um, because the ownership aspect, the the Beatles, as far as I know, owned everything, right? Or was that after a certain point with Apple Records that they owned? Certainly after a certain okay, point. Yeah, 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 no question. Yeah, they didn't um, always own everything, and as as you know, they famously don't own their publishing anymore. You know, it's owned right. by Sony ATV and, and the Michael Jackson estate. That's that's a big part of free expression is artistic ownership. Totally, um, and it sounds like he really kind of shepherded them into into making sure that they had control of their catalog. And There's their no question. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say what would have happened had he lived, but um, but he had definitely started to put a mechanism in place where they could have had ownership, and I think that that uh, got derailed after he passed away. Right. 
What was the, the last record he worked on? Was that Sgt. Pepper? Uh, he worked through Sgt. Pepper's. They were working on Yellow Submarine. Uh, they had, and uh, and ma- the some of Magical Mystery Tour had started to be put into place. Sure. So, um, so his fingerprints are still on. I think his fingerprints are pretty much on on all the Beatles records up through the White Album. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that was in the White Album were stuff that had been started that had started to be worked out earlier. So I would say his fingerprints are even in there as well. Well, and really on some of the solo projects, if uh, All Things Must Pass, sure, is so heavily influenced by the time spent in India. If he was totally, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, fingerprint is a is a you know is a very poetic word. I mean, I believe that Brian Epstein's fingerprints are felt in all the Beatles' work, you know, sure. even the, the stuff long after he died, because he allowed them he allowed them and encouraged them to do that kind of artistic expression. You know, John John Lennon had interest in writing, and Brian encouraged that. He said, we should publish a book. You're a huge star. We have the leverage that we can do that. Why don't you publish a book? And then he did. Bob John published a couple of books. You sure. Know? It's an interesting character because unlike a lot of management um, in, in the artistic world, <clears throat> rather than just making sure he was maximizing his income through through their work it really sounds like um and you get a feel for this in your book that it was less about his paycheck and more about making sure that these four guys who if your book is to be believed and i'm sure it is he deeply loved these guys he was looking out for them he was you know protecting their interests in ways they didn't even know he was um guiding them slightly um, I guess early on there was a little bit of guidance with you know the fashion and the haircuts, yep. but after that point, once they had the absolutely the momentum, he let them go. No question. I mean, he was very involved in their early fashion decisions. You know, sure. with the haircuts and the suits, and those were all things he encouraged. And in some in some ways, the word word might even be enforced, not sure. encouraged. You know, um, but uh, but in their latter career, they they were they became the artists that he believed that they would. Right. So they had their own opinions and their own thoughts. And what Brian did then. Then is he allowed them to do that? You know, yeah. when the record labels were were worried that their image was changing, Brian said it's time for a new image. Right. You know, the, we're we're getting into the '60s. He pointed at, at at Los Angeles where the Doors were starting to make record. There's a band in the in the U.S. called the Doors. You know, uh, influenced by by uh, beats like Burroughs. You know, so it's okay for the Beatles to not look like the safe uh, boy band that they used to be. It's time for a new image. He let the band pick that new image. Right. But, but he fought for their ability to, to, to do that. For, he fought for their ability to express themselves artistically. That's really what it boils down to. That's, yeah, and that's, it know? sounds different than so many acts of the time where the management was there to just make sure they're locked in a studio and recording best-selling albums. It sounded like he really was encouraging an artistic atmosphere and a atmosphere, like incubating a kind of wellspring for these guys to, to do whatever they needed to and it's a you know you mentioned Colonel Tom Parker before and it seems like a total magic mirror reversal of what he was doing yeah it's just a complete clamp down and like yeah look I believe that Brian Epstein encouraged that environment and uh, and and that that is my my belief based on my research and the conversations I've had etc but one thing you cannot argue because it is a fact is he facilitated that environment absolutely whether yeah, he yeah. encouraged it whether he was his fingerprints are really felt in it whether you know we can argue that we can debate that Beatles historians may have different feelings about that but whether he facilitated that that's inarguable right. he facilitated an environment in within the business that allowed the Beatles to push those boundaries mm-hmm. and and that's that's critical you know yeah 
that's that's fighting for artistic freedom is, is essentially what he did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? How you know we like I said we spoke about this in the other interview, but how much of that do you think came from his internal struggle with having to hide who he was yeah, in a no, really I th- fundamental I th- way? I think it was everything. Yeah, you know, I think that the fact that he was gay at a period where it was considered against the law is 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 uh, is integral is an integral part of how he approached his management of the Beatles down to. Uh, his ability to understand why everyone would love them, girls would love them, boys would love them, parents would love them, some songs grandparents would love. Like his homosexuality, I think, allowed him to have a broader vision for who would, you know, putting it bluntly, who would have crushes on the Beatles. He could sure. see all sides of that. But even deeper than that is what you're getting at now. His, you know, his, his struggles to express himself in a world that said he was crazy, you know, that people like him didn't do things like that. Right. You know, like gay Jewish pe- men from Liverpool don't manage pop bands. You know, that his struggle to prove that that was wrong is not so different from him saying, you know, top 40 pop bands don't express political opinions right you know like the fact that he could that he could get that from a from a really fundamental place i think is part of what allowed him to fight for it so successfully i think well and also what what comes across in the book is that he's a here's an individual who desperately wants to say the world i'm gay i'm jewish i am into you know pop music at a time like when he started being interested in pop music there's a scene where he's talking to the kids in his father's store and it's evident that he's like the older guy who's yeah, maybe yeah. you know um although interestingly not so much older you know like five years older that's true Isn't yeah that yeah. Funny? yeah doesn't really seem like a period you know what I mean? he seems yeah. like an anomaly that yeah knows he, all and he was it. i mean you know liverpool was a rough and tumble port town you know and sure. here's this guy this this immaculately dressed guy and wearing suits and you know speaking in uh you know he didn't have a scouse accent he spoke the queen's english you right. know uh he was a we- he was a misfit in every way in every uh sense of the word in 1960s liverpool He'd have been a misfit in London, much less in Liverpool, right. you know? But but what it, it really comes across is this feeling that here's a guy who his he does not have an outlet. He's hiding so much of who he is. Yeah. And he comes across these four guys in a club, and he's you know, falls in love with them in a way, not not a sexual way, but he really deeply yeah. like loves yeah. these guys. And he makes it his job to make sure that they don't have to hide themselves the way that he has. That's exactly right. Um, and I think that comes across in the book. Thank and you. And I think that Thank you. when you talk about the the Beatles, how much they respected him and loved him and trusted him, I think that that kind of... I think that that kind of almost paternal protection of their free expression rights um, is, is a big part of that. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have said it any better than you just did. Oh, great. Sure. No, that's, that's <laughs> it. I think, I think you nailed it. Um... We've got a little bit of time here. Let's talk a little bit about um, what you've got coming up. You, you've talked about wanting to do more in the graphic novel world, but what, what else do you have going on in, in the broader sense? You've had some big announcements this year. Yeah, so so um, I'll stick with Fifth Beetle for another minute. We sure. are adapting it into a film, which I'm incredibly excited about. And, uh, and I will, will start by saying it's something that I've thought about since I thought about the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Literally 10 years ago when I decided I wanted to tell the Brian Epstein story, the two mediums that I thought were best suited for this were, were graphic novel and film. Um, two mediums that I think play with color palette and visuals sure. uh, in, in narrative ways uh, more powerfully than any other uh, mediums do, in my opinion, which is why I picked those two. So from the very beginning, I had written a graphic novel script and a screenplay, um, which is important to note just because, uh, you know, 
know, the book has done so well, and I'm so proud of it. You know, it's from a sales perspective, a New York Times bestseller. From a critical perspective, you know, these two Eisners that were nominated for a Lambda Award, best LGBT graphic novel. It's been so um, joyful and humbling. You know, the recognition uh, the the book has received, and publicly, it kind of looks as though like, ah, oh, you have a hit graphic novel, so you immediately got a film deal. Um, that's not really true. You know, right. th- that legend is okay. You know, so so if th- if that's the legend that's out in the world, I, I won't uh, I won't complain. It's not a bad legend. But between you and me, the truth is we've been working on both for a very long time. But to give the graphic novel its due, there's no question in the wake of the book's success, the film efforts have exponentially moved forward. And so what are those efforts? Uh, the most exciting pieces of news are that we have secured music rights. Mm-hmm. Paul McCartney, uh, Ringo Starr, Yoko Ono, and Olivia Harrison all had to approve the project through uh, the Beatles company Apple Corps, which paved the way for us to do a deal with Sony ATV, who control the music publishing, which is all a very long-winded way of saying, for our film, we have access to Beatles music. Which is huge. Huge. We are literally the first and only film about the band, the first biographical film in history to have secured their approval and music rights. So it's a great honor. It's a great responsibility. uh, But we're very, very excited about that. Um, And as an aside, Paul McCartney is also a huge fan of this book. Um, He wrote us a lovely note uh, saying how much he enjoyed it and how much he he loved Andrew's artwork. He is a big comic geek, uh, as you may know. Um, I did not know that. He he is. He has a song on one of his records, uh, Magneto versus Titanium Man. Oh, yeah, that's right. Which is literally about uh, uh, an incident between Magneto and Titanium Man. So no, he's a he's a big comic book guy. So um, so this uh, this has this you know he was he was very moved by this book and that was obviously a big source of pride for me as well. That's great. Um, so the film is moving forward with music rights. Uh, Peyton Reed is directing. Uh, Peyton's amazing. He directed uh, the breakup. Um, yes, man. The first Bring It On and Down with Love. Mm-hmm. Um, that last film in particular is a '60s period piece. Down with Love is spectacular, and it it really uh, it has that kind of color palette. Totally, and everything that you're talking. I'm so about. glad yeah. you know that film. It's it's probably uh, compared to some of his other films is the one that that's lesser known, uh, but is the most that that has the, the Beatles DNA. I, I, in I it, can't recommend know. that. It's an awesome higher, film, yeah. film. Yeah, you and McGregor and Renee Zellweger are amazing in it. And, uh, and if you see that movie, you can tell why he would be so great at The Fifth Beetle. Yeah. And he will. He's, ama- he's an amazing director and, and a super sweet guy. And we're casting Brian Epstein right now. Um, we are out to a number of, uh, of wonderful, very fanboy-friendly uh, actors. I can't tell you who, but um, um, we're hoping to make an announcement on that soon. And uh, the plan is to shoot the film in early 2015. Sounds so awesome. So it's very, very exciting times for The Fifth Beetle. Uh, in addition to that, I'm, I've been working with Alanis Morissette for uh, about a year and a half now, and we are adapting her uh, her album Jagged Little Pill uh, for the stage. I was one of the producers of Green Day's American Idiot, uh, so it's kind of taking that that concept, although Jagged Little Pill is going to be much more narrative than American Idiot was. American Idiot was a very thematic production, but it's the same concept of taking a, you know, a very well-known, very beloved record and putting it onto a Broadway stage, so I'm very excited about that. And then the third thing I'm working on is I am uh, working with Jimmy Gownley, sure. uh, who is a wonderful uh, artist and cartoonist. Um, he his uh, his best-selling children's series Amelia Rules. Mm-hmm. As a producer, uh, I'm adapting that for film and television. He has a new graphic and novel through Scholastic called uh, The Dumbest Idea Ever. It's I a wonderful yeah, book. Yeah, yeah he's a great uh, if cartoonist. If any of you have not read that book, you should read it. It's very inspiring. Um, I'm a huge. I mean, Jimmy and I have become friends, but he's a bit of a hero of mine. I mean, I think he's just uh, talk about being able to tell uh, deep stories uh, through uh, through sequential art. I mean, Jimmy Jimmy can take something that, that on its page looks like a silly, fun kids comic 
and and have deeper meaning and meaning that that will move the most jaded adult while at the same time entertaining the youngest child it's a skill and uh, and jimmy excels at it and and that's what amelia rules uh does and um, so i'm incredibly excited to be um adapting amelia for uh for film and television and uh we are working with chris parker who's an amazing screenwriter and chris and jimmy have written a, a gorgeous script for a for an amelia sort of two-hour pilot slash film and uh and we're going to be introducing that to the film and television community soon so uh so that that's something else i'm incredibly excited about and uh and going all the way back to the beginning i just i love writing comics so i definitely am going to be continuing to work in this medium uh i have a short story that i've written for harbinger uh that i hope will be part of the uh, the harbinger 25th anniversary uh issue that's coming out uh later this year over the summer and uh, and I do have some uh, some bigger graphic novel ideas that I can't quite talk about yet. <laughs> and I will also say that uh, that I'm hoping my next comic work, uh, original comic work, uh, will be serialized. So uh, the Fifth Beetle took about ten years to make. I turned forty last year, and I'd like my next graphic novel to come out before I turn fifty. <laughs> so so I'm hoping that uh, that I will say that my next work will probably be serialized and something that will be compiled into a novel length format but uh but hopefully will also stand on its own in a number of uh, of smaller issues um so yeah cool sounds great those are the things i'm up to i should say that we uh we have in stock currently um in our in our web donation center uh at cbldf.org slash donate um copies of the fifth beetle and they're signed by by vivek and uh they're available uh right now if you're listening to this in 2016 maybe not so much but <laughs> summer 2014 we have well, them i'm a huge supporter of cbldf so if you are listening to this in 2016 and anyone still cares about the fifth beetle then then i will make sure that there are signed <laughs> copies in their donate section so uh it's a terrific read and i i encourage everybody to get a copy of it and uh it's nominated for an eisner congratulations for two eisners two eisners that's right two eisners best reality based graphic novel and also uh andrew for best uh, painter slash multimedia artist. So anyone who's listening who is a comics industry professional, please go to EisnerVote.com and register to vote. Even I hope you'll vote for Fifth Beetle, but even if you don't vote for Fifth Beetle, vote. Yes. It's important to support this industry that we love, so please vote. I'm going to second all of that. Uh, Vivek, thank you so much. It was great to see Thanks. you, it's and I appreciate you uh, talking about the Fifth Beetle with us. Thank you. It's a joy to, to be here, and uh, you know I, I love you, and I love the CBLDF. And I love the Fifth Beatles, so what, this has been a, a great afternoon for me. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you so much. As we said there at the end of the interview, um, if you go to cbldf.myshopify.com, there's copies of the Fifth Beatles signed by Vivek right there on the front page. Uh, should be evident when you go to that link. Uh, I'd like to thank Vivek for taking the time to talk to us. It was uh, a lot of fun and... and- Hopefully informative. Uh, I know that I feel like I know a little bit more about the Beatles. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to continue the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and clicking the donate banner. cbldf.org is also the best place to check on all the work that we're doing, legal and otherwise, and uh, check in for censorship news and, and news from the world of comic books. Uh, This podcast and all of our education programs are made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation and from the financial support of listeners like yourself. The CBLDF podcast is edited and produced by myself, Alex Cox. 
And the music this week is by Django Reinhardt's Orchestra. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Thank you.